Amen. Amen. Uh, Jonathan's right. We, we, we made it. Uh, we are at the end of 1 Timothy. Um, unless something drastically changes, I'm not going to do a summary, and we'll be in 2 Timothy next week. Uh, so hopefully you have enjoyed the time in the book. I have. Um, and there's a good and, and appropriate ending to the book. So uh, we're moving from last week, looking at the glories of God, <clears throat> um, praising him for who he is, just taking a moment to step back and praise God that there is none like him, Father, Son, and Spirit. To this week, we're going to look at the riches of God. I think it's important for us uh, often to be reminded our heavenly Father is rich. Not only does he own the cattle on a thousand hills, as Psalm 50 says, not only do all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air belong to him, but he owns everything. And that should be a reminder to people like us who live in lives of luxury, who are given more than most people throughout all of history, that it is his and it is from him, and we are given it to steward and give back to him. And so one thing I want us to think about this morning um, that is true for the church throughout all the ages, certainly for the church in Ephesus and the church in our day, is that God is gracious to his people. He abounds in riches to his people. And very often, that means earthly riches. So for many believers, after conversion, all of our frivolous living and the foolish ways we would spend our money, hopefully, change. And we are wiser with our money. We don't um, lavish ourselves, but we become better workers. We become more reliable. Um, We then... Be, are recognized in our businesses and by our employers, and we often are promoted, and um, we are often given raises and more and more resources. But it is not long before we forget the grace of God entirely. It is not long before this uh, new diligence and wisdom that we have in, in Christ, which propels us forward on this earth, often tends us to focus on what has been given to us. Um, And so that's what I want to look at this morning, because there is an impetus for Timothy and for pastors of every generation to guard what is of eternal value, to guard that great deposit, and to hold it and to promote it and to preach it and to teach it and to apply it. Why? Because we so easily forget it. We so easily lose sight of it and remind us of riches that never grow old. So, um, after breaking from exalting and praising the Lord, Paul's resuming a discussion uh, addressing riches that began earlier. So, um, let's, by way of quick recap, look at verse 5 of chapter 6. Now, remember, there was a conversation a couple weeks ago about those desiring to be rich, So transitioning from the false teachers in verse 5, who use godliness as a means of gain, and then contrasting that with those who have true gain, contentment. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing, or we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. <clears throat> For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Since we have plenty to talk about practically here, we're just going to jump right into our text from there. I think uh, these, these lead well into one another. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures uh, treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning just humbled and in awe of your grace. For the saints in Christ Jesus, you have lavishly poured eternal salvation on us. You have also abundantly provided for our every need and above and beyond what we actually need. You give us so many good gifts. And in your common grace, you give good gifts to everyone who walks on earth. You give them rain and sun and food and life and provision. But all of us, saint and, and rebel, all forget easily. We look to the gifts and forget the giver. Lord, stir in your people this morning a desire for eternal riches. That we would look to the riches of your glorious grace. That we would praise you for everything we have. That we would avoid the temptations of riches. That we would be good stewards. Because we want you to be glorified in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, in our wallets, in our bank accounts. Because all this is passing away. We can't take it with us. We will die as naked as we came into this, this world. Lord, help us to be people who store up what moth and rust cannot destroy, what thieves cannot break in and steal. May what is truly valuable to us be what is found in Christ and therefore lives on into eternity. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So what you hear in the introduction and in the prayer, you're going to hear throughout the service because we need to hear it. So again, transitioning from those who desire to be rich to those who are rich. Um, let's talk about being rich for a moment. Uh, Ephesus was one of the richest cities in the Roman Empire. Because of the trade route, because of um, all of the industry that surrounded the temples and the false gods, because of all of the, 
the, the businesses and the highways that, that converge in the area, you had more wealthy people in Ephesus than in most cities in the Roman Empire. And so the wealthy people, the rich of that day, were very similar to the rich of our day. They owned property. We already discussed they owned slaves. They employed others. They wore nice clothes. Um, all things that we would expect. But here's something that they uh, didn't have. There wasn't really a middle class. The disparity between the wealthy and the poor was stark. So some lived really well, and, and most just barely got by. But as I mentioned in the introduction, what happens to believers often, so these believers come out of this um, drunken, self-absorbed, uh, riotous type of living, and now have a desire to serve the Lord, and so they become more industrious. They become wiser and more diligent with their, their finances and probably add to their wealth. And so when you think about this letter, it is probably being read in one of these wealthy people's homes. Think about that. Praise God for those who have the resources to house the church, and they are hearing, as for you who are rich in this world, because the whole church fits in your living room. That's the setting of this letter. Now, before we think this is written to someone else, let's take a survey. Do you think you're rich? Let me ask you a question. Do you have more than one pair of shoes? You are richer than most people around the world and most people throughout history. Can you wear a new outfit every day for a week, for a month, even if it's out of style? You're richer than most people throughout history. Do you have food in your pantry? Do you have a refrigerator? Did you drive here? Do you have a bank account? Do you eat three meals a day? You are rich. Even you college students, your parents are rich. <laughs> so by that, you're rich. Now, of course, some have more riches than others. But everyone in this room is wealthier than most people who have ever walked on this earth. Certainly more than most people reading this letter in Ephesus. So when it says rich people, pay attention, that's us. This is not something that is written to someone else. This is written to the, those of us in this room who live in the richest country that has ever existed and have amazing wealth at our fingertips. And how often does that distract us from what is truly riches? So the other thing I want you to see here too, the concern is not the riches. Riches are amoral, meaning they are without moral value one way or the other. It is the importance that we place on them that make them immoral. It's not the money, it's the love of the money. So the other thing we're going to see in this message and in this text, I know we know this, but we need to be reminded that the riches of this life do not last. And because you are rich in this life, it has nothing to do with eternity. The importance we place on them is what's, 
it's what's being addressed here. Because if we hold on to these riches, trust me, they are holding on to us. And so Paul wants to address all of our hearts here. So the first temptation of riches, of the rich, for us, there's a charge. The first charge is not to be haughty. This, in the Greek, is high-minded, proud. We all know there's this temptation. When you have money and you have influence, even if you've got a little more money than someone else, you tend to feel a bit more important, don't you? We're all guilty of this. Our culture loves to lift up the opinions of the rich and famous. They're becoming more and more ridiculous, so maybe it's not the same. Um, but still, there's this confidence, there's this arrogance that comes along with having a lot of stuff. You begin to think, you're, you look around at what you have and what you wear and what you drive and compare yourself to someone who doesn't, and we all have this temptation to think, I might be a little more special than them. We begin to think high of ourselves. And this even happens in the church. There is a danger in comparing ourselves to others. It is real easy to look down our nose on someone else who may not have what, what, what we have. In many modern churches and what we would see in Ephesus would be the equivalent of the guy with the tailored Italian suit sitting next to the guy who showed up in the same clothes he worked in all week. How dare he not put on a nice suit for Sunday morning? If you put on a nice suit, great. But if you can't afford a nice suit, the only thing you have is what you, you, you work in. Don't let that be a division in the church. Because in the church is the only place in history and anywhere where the rich and the poor are equal. The church is the only place where that stuff doesn't matter. And as we're going to see this morning, often your riches are more of a stumbling block. Poverty often offers a freedom that riches don't. And so the first charge here, not to be haughty, is a sin against one another. This is a sin against man, especially our brothers, not to see ourselves and what we have done or what we have accomplished or what we've been given as making us better, more important, or our opinion being more important than others. This happens in, in many churches. I have seen this time and time again. Where when the rich guy speaks up and makes a complaint, the elders listen. They get, they get special visits. They get special conversations because they've got this money and influence. The guy who's just scraping by working at, at, at McDonald's, the, the uh, pastor's not coming to him having the, uh, the uh, financial conversation. This is sad. And this, is, this is partiality. And, but what Paul's saying is, here is that partiality begins in our hearts. Don't you be haughty. Don't you be high-minded. I gave it to you. I will take it away. The second temptation is that wealth gives us a false hope. Here's what Paul says, nor don't be haughty, nor set their hope, the rich, on the uncertainty of riches. Wealth gives us this false sense of security, this false hope. Why? Because it's uncertain. The only thing that is certain about riches is that they won't last. 
That's the only thing consistent is they're they are here for a time and they'll be gone. Uh, let's look at Proverbs 23. Proverbs gives us wisdom in many areas. But I think this is, this is good for our American ears to hear. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Notice what this is not saying. This is not saying wealth is bad. This is not saying don't, don't receive wealth or wages for your work, but don't work for the purpose of wealth. Wealth is not your end goal. It should not be your end goal. Be discerning enough to desist. Those who are wise, those who are discerning, will resist and desist the temptation of working for wealth. Why? Verse 5. When your, eye, when your eyes light on it, it is gone. As soon as you see it, as soon as you get it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Uh, we've seen that in the last couple years. Every one of us who took confidence in our 401ks and our IRAs, and students learn that as soon as possible, uh, but we all learn that doesn't really matter too much. It, most of it's flown, flown away. But we all know the temptation that riches bring. Um, Jesus addresses this. Now, because Jesus talks about money than almost anything else, uh, I think maybe more than anything else, um, we're going to spend a lot of time in the gospel. So keep one finger in 1 Timothy, and we're going to be bouncing back and forth. We're first going to look at Matthew 6. I mean, you're... You're very familiar with this. You've probably heard it. But I want you to think about it in terms, in terms of our text. Matthew 6, verses 19 uh, through 21. Here's the contrast. Remember, this is Jesus who didn't carry a money purse around with him, who didn't buy a house. He was not one of the preachers in sneakers. He didn't have a Mercedes this is one of the guys with one pair of shoes and one pair of clothing. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's what this entire text, this entire sermon is about, is looking at our hearts. What do we treasure? Where is our treasure? And so Jesus puts it in even starker terms, jumping to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, and he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I think a lie we believe about wealth is I can serve money and serve God. You can't. Jesus says if you serve money, if you chase after money, you will end up hating God. It will become your master. It will be an idol, and it will be your God. And so we got to be honest. There's a, there's a confidence that money gives us. We all know the feeling you, feel, you stand up a little straighter when you've got money in your account, when you get paid versus when you're, when, when you're scraping by. You tend to li live a little more freely depending on how many zeros are added to your name. Or maybe it's just me. 
And this is the, the temptation. Money gives us a little bit of taste of confidence, and it is begging us to serve it. So here's the charge. The charge of the last one was the riches make you sin against man. The charge of this one is riches make you sin against God. Remember, we looked at Proverbs 38 and 9 a few weeks ago. I want to look at it again because it identifies what happens with the love of riches. Proverbs 30, second half of verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches. There's temptation in both. Feed me with the food that is needful for me and give me just enough. Why? Lest I be full or rich and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's why we don't trust in riches. But there's a temptation on both sides. I have too much, I'm full and I'm confident in myself. I have too little, all my hope is in, is, is in my riches, so I beg, borrow, and steal to get riches and profane the name of my God. This is why we don't trust in riches. This is why we don't trust in the things of this world. Because they're passing away. You've been on this earth for any number of years, and especially in the last few years. Governments change, markets change, we've seen inflation change. Those things change. It almost seems like overnight sometimes. But God does not change. That is why back in 1 Timothy, Paul says, don't be haughty, don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Here's why. Because trusting in wealth is like trusting in the sands of the seashore. The ground underneath your feet feels solid, but stand there and trust in it for a few minutes. And as the tide rolls in and the waves crash, it begins to slide out from under your feet. Now, riches don't happen that quick, but it's the same way. It's a slow burn. It doesn't happen with every tide, but we can easily be led astray because we can put our confidence in the equivalent of sandcastles. Jesus told us the man who's wise builds his house on the rock and the man who's a fool builds it on sand. Now, our riches may not change overnight, but they will change. Even if you are rich your entire life, the moment you die, it is gone like the sandcastle at high tide. It will change nonetheless. And so are you investing in, is your hope in what will last? What is a firm rock of foundation or what is shifting like the sands? That is why we put our hope in the immutable, omnipotent, almighty God who does not change. And so as we move forward and we navigate our lives, thinking about the idea of navigation. A compass is a very simple thing, a magnetized needle that points to north. What is your needle? Does it point to true north? Most people, their north is the security that they create for themselves. This is where I feel good, this is where I feel confident. 
I'm pointing this way because this is what I want. But as we know, our wants are not true north. Our needles have pointed in every direction underneath the sun. But there is one who does not change. There is a true north and the unchangeable living God. And so as we think about the direction of our life, as we navigate our life, is it dependent on circumstances and riches and security that you've built for yourself? Or is it on the rock of ages that cannot and will not be moved? So this God who we're to trust in. Notice how many times Paul uses the word rich. The Greek word, he uses the noun, the verb, the adverb, and the adjective in this passage. Think he's trying to make a point? Okay, to you who look to your riches, look to God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I want us to talk about this for a moment. Here's the contrast. Our wealth, our possessions, our abilities, the world around us. God has given it to us, to his children. Not that we serve it and worship it, but we look to the creator and giver of all things. I want you to think about that for a moment. Everything, everything on this earth is not good or evil. Money does not have a soul. Food, clothing, leisure time, music, sex, anything you can uh, put, invest in. It is not alive. It does not have a soul. It is those of us with a soul and our hearts desire that make it either something to glorify God or to lose sight of the one who gives richly. We talked about this in chapter 4, looking back at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Our God is rich, and he gives richly. We can pray and thank God for what he's given us and enjoy it without guilt, because it comes from him, and we look to him. This is why James says, James chapter 1, he begins, James chapter 1, verse 16. He begins by saying, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't lose sight. Verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Wealth changes. Our circumstances change, our happiness changes, but God doesn't change. Look to the one who gives gifts that don't change. Don't hold on to the things that change. Here's another lie of wealth. I earned it. It's mine. I'm going to hold on to it tightly. I want to get as much of it as I can, but we forget God owns it all. And we are given it to steward for a time. Now, we may not want to admit this, but if we're honest, most of us, all of us, are like crazed children on Christmas morning. Anyone ever watched this scene? 
The parent works hard, brings home money, thinks thoughtfully about what their child will enjoy. They go out and buy it, and they, and they, and they wrap it, and they, and they present it to this child to see the look of joy on their little heathen faces. And what does that child do? Thank you, mommy. Thank you, daddy. No, they tear into it, and they look with longing and loving at this new toy. They hold on to it. It's mine. This is my love. This is my joy. Until the next toy. Until the next week. They tear off their paper and they stare at it with their back turned to the giver who could give them so much more. Are we any different? It's no different for adults. We get that little Christmas morning feeling every time the Amazon truck pulls up, right? Because <laughs> our hearts say, ooh, more for me. This will make me happy. Mm-hmm. How's that working out for you? It's not working out for me. So here we go. Let's look at our hearts for a moment. Are we thankful for our gifts? Do we praise God for what we enjoy? Do we praise God for everything we enjoy? If we were to be honest, we were to go down the list of all the things that we enjoy, all the things that God has, has given us, we'd be here for a while. But how often is our list of petitions longer than our list of praises? Or are we like the little child who is longingly staring at this new toy that we're going to cast aside tomorrow? So the, riches are, the, the rich are first warned. So now we transition. What are they to do then? Verse 18. They are to do good. Okay, watch out for the warnings. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. With great wealth becomes great responsibility. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 16. Maybe one of the most confusing parables of Jesus. We read this and we kind of scratch our heads. Like, Jesus, what are you telling us here? The parable of the dishonest manager who somehow becomes the hero of the story. I want to read uh, this entire section because we need to get the context before we get the lesson at the end. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man. Who do you think that rich man is in this parable? This is the living God. The rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking my management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. Sounds like Gen Z. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oils. He said, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. 
He said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, uh, he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's where most of us read this and scratch our heads. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The wicked know how to play according to the rules of the wicked. Notice, there's some wisdom in this dishonest manager. Because if he's going to be out of a job, he better have a place to live and someone else to hire him. So he needs to make friends as soon as possible. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And I tell you, verse 9, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. It's a tool. So that when it fails, because it will, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now here comes the principle. One who is faithful in very little is to be faithful in much. This parable is about the God who owns all things and says, I am giving you stewardship. I am giving you management in my house. What will you do with it? Will you use it as a tool to bless others and to leverage it for eternal things? If you are faithful with little, you'll also be faithful with much. And the one who is dishonest with very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you can't even be faithful with monopoly money, how can you be faithful with, with gold that lasts forever? Jesus goes on. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? This is what we're talking about here. Remember, he already said, the stuff of this world, moth, rust, thieves, it's gone. But in heaven, there's a real inheritance. There is true treasure that will not waste away. He says something similar to what he said in Matthew 6. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, he'll be devoted to the other, or one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Keep your finger in Luke. If Jesus says something more than once, you think we should pay attention? You cannot serve God and money? So he tells them, money's just a tool. So that's why Paul says here, do good with it. It comes and it goes. How do we use our money? How do we view our, our, our money? Oh, one thing I forgot to bring up, verse 14 of Luke 16. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Why? Because money was what was most important to them. It was foolish to them. Like, wait, you owe me 100? Like, I'm not going to let you off the hook. That's money. But Jesus says those, those lasting relationships, those friendships that you, you make with the money, they'll, they'll last longer than the money will. So that's why Paul says here, do good. And the temptation, another temptation of wealth is to say that since I don't need anything, I don't have to do anything. I don't need anything. I don't care what is going on with, with anyone else. And then all of our money and all of our stuff becomes a playground for our own desires. So when Paul says here they're to do good, you do good by being rich in good works. Not like those riches that don't last. Remember I said keep your finger in Luke, look at Luke 12. Luke 12. 
It's almost like Jesus knows all the things of our, our heart that Paul's going to address years later. Luke 12, verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of the rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, he's high-minded. This is a hardy rich man. What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? You know, every time I drive by one of those big uh, um, storage facilities, I think of this, this parable. Like, we've got barns upon barns upon barns. I remember uh, when I was foolish and I was younger, I had storage facilities with stuff I don't even have anymore. Like, I just paid money monthly to put stuff away that I didn't need and didn't care about. I wouldn't touch it for a year, but I had to save it. This is the old version of that. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for your many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be married. That is the false security of riches. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you prepared. Whose will they be? Here one day, gone the next. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We are to be rich in good works, not in good things. We can have good things, but that's not where our riches are. We're familiar with Ephesians 2. Now, Ephesians 2 is a great passage about our salvation. But there is a purpose for our salvation. Now, Ephesians 2 is very clear. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Because we could not be saved by works. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is the greatest and highest gift that God has given. He has given us many, but there is none greater than this. Not that we can be boastful and haughty. This is why God does not add our works to our salvation. Not only could we not, but then we couldn't help but take credit. But he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We aren't saved by good works. We are saved to good works. If we have such a great salvation, if Christ Jesus created us new in him, has breathed spiritual and eternal life into our lungs, has forgiven our sins, has given us an eternal inheritance, he died to our wicked and sinful desires. How could we go back to them? So then we are called to do good works. You know how much God cares about our heart and our good works? He prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. His plan all along is he has to put our good works to shame and then glorify our good works that we do in the righteousness of Christ. That Christ would get all the credit for our salvation and all the credit and all the glory for our good works. So think about it. Every time you do good in the name of Christ, he gets glory, not you. And our heavenly Father is exalted, not us. And at the same time, we're storing up riches in his name that no one can take away. It's a win-win, win-win. 
So, back in 1 Timothy, we're to do good. Also, uh, so being rich in good deeds, it's a, it's, it's a, a state. It's not just an action to be rich in good deeds, to also be generous and ready to share. Um, this speaks to the heart and the hand, respectively. If you are generous, you're not, you're not really generous if you, if you give it away and you grit your teeth and you mumble the whole time. Generosity begins in the heart. Cheerfulness begins inside. So then when you share your hand, what you do is in agreement with your heart, what you think and what you feel. So that's what Paul's getting at. Be rich in good works. What are those... What, uh, what describes those good works? A generous heart and a willing hand. And here's something I want to just think about for a moment. That the church throughout history, and I give you many examples, wealthy Christians supported the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, the apostles and the early church. And every early church, the, the letters that we love that are written to, they're meeting in wealthy people's homes. Wealth is not bad. God uses faithful, wealthy people throughout history in their generosity, and then the church can be more generous, not so that Lydia or anyone else may be lifted up for their generosity, so God may be glorified. And so praise God, do not feel guilty for your wealth. Do not love it, do not serve it. Our congregation is very generous. And it is a blessing being around people who have done well in their lives, who the Lord has given much, and they don't hold it tightly. And we, and we benefit. This church was paid off before I, I got here. We've been able to save money. We've been able to do renovations. We've been able to help people. We've been able to support missionaries. We've done all kinds of things. And the Lord continues to bless us. And that's what true riches is. When we give like our God, we begin in the household of faith, we love him by loving those that he loves. If he loved us so richly to pour out the abundance of the faithfulness of his son on us, how could we not love others who also share in that image? There's a beautiful picture of this in Philippians 4. The end of Philippians 4, uh, one of the few positive letters in the New Testament. Just a joyful and encouraging book. Not the other books aren't positive, but the entire tone is, is positive. Um, at the end of the book, notice how Paul speaks glowingly about the uh, generosity of the church in Philippi and to him, but also to their benefit. Verse 14, this is Philippians chapter 4, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Meaning, Paul's in jail, Paul's going through all these, th these things, and they became co-laborers with him. They weren't there, but they supported him. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia in the beginning of his gospel work, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Think about it we would not have the letters of the New Testament if the Philippian church had not supported Paul. They're the only ones. How is he gonna eat? 
Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, again and again and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you that I'm able to do ministry because of your generosity, but I'm most thankful that you get sanctified through it, that you grow through it, that you increase to your credit. I'm praising God because you are storing up eternal riches on my account. I have received full payment and more. Paul's concern is not his daily need. He knows the Lord will provide. He's just in awe that the Lord will provide through his people and grow his people through helping Paul, who helped churches. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. What are these, what are these gifts? What does is, what is generosity from the church look like? A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. When we are generous, when we contribute to the needs of the saints, when we love our brothers and sisters well, it is an offering going before the throne of God. You think he looks lightly on that? You think that perishes away? And what will his God do? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is beautiful. This is a picture of what generosity in the church looks like. Ministry that furthers ministry, that glorifies God, that builds up the saints, that brings more to Christ, who then are generous, who further ministry that glorifies God and builds up the saints. This is what we've seen throughout the ages. But we've got to be honest. Sometimes, often, wealth gets a hold of us. And we're afraid to let it go. But if you recognize how generous God is, and you know how richly he has given to you, and you know he will give you much more, you are free to be generous. And it is by giving away wealth that we truly become wealthy. It is by giving away wealth that we truly become wealthy. Because we then gain interest in our eternal accounts. We won't go there, but we know the parable of the talents. Those who have little, even the one who has two, and doubles it. He has gained interest and he hears, well done, good and faithful servant. Even with the little that we have, we can be blessed and gain with that. So thus, transitioning into verse 19 of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Thus, here's the purpose, here's the end result. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here's the result. When we are generous, when we are grateful... When we use our earthly resources for eternal gain, our hearts store up treasure for that which is certain, not the uncertain riches of this world. If our hope is in God and our riches are in eternity, how heartbroken are you when the things of this world change? How affected are you when markets crash? When the business deal didn't go through, when you didn't get the job that you wanted, when you didn't get recognized the way you should? The only thing that stands for eternity is that which is done in Christ. And every one of us, judgment is a final decision 
before the throne of God. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Very quickly, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Why should we do good? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We are all rich in Christ, but those who are generous and those who gain an interest here, there will be a heavenly bank account and riches that, don't ask me, I don't know what they are, but I know they are promised. And so that's why Paul says here that by storing up our treasure for ourselves, it's a good foundation for the future. Because what is our future? It's a glorious city of gold. It's living with a God of eternal beauty and generosity who's preparing a place of joy and peace and celebration with him. And we take hold of that which is truly life. Those are riches that live forever. Why? Because those are riches in Christ and he lives forever. And he's the one who secures them. So let's track with Paul here a little bit. Let's put all this together, kind of summarizing our, our chapter. Remember verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith, of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life. Remember, we said in John 17 that eternal life is knowing Christ. And so we, we look to him, as Paul told Timothy. We, we praise him, as Paul told Timothy. Because through his work and through his righteousness, we are united to his eternal life. So if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I'm in him, and I'm an heir with him, and he has eternal life, and he has riches that, that, that won't fade, that means I have riches that won't fade. That is amazing. And we get to grow treasure there. You are given a heavenly 401k account. And what you do in the name of Christ and what you do lovingly and selflessly to build up the body of Christ and others, you are growing that. So, that's why we don't become prideful or comfortable with our earthly riches. We keep it in open hands. Because even the riches of this world, you ever try to hold on to sand as tight as you can, it's always going to slip through your fingers. That's why we keep it open-handed. The Lord gives he takes away, we saw in Job, blessed be the name of the Lord, so that, you know what happens when your hands are open with the things of this world, you are free and unhindered to hold on to the things of the next world and not let go of what will not pass through your fingers. So let's take a second before we get to our last section to examine our own hearts. No one can do this but you. I can't see your heart. Um, I'm not here to. I'm here to just pose the question, and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do his work. What do you treasure? Where is your hope? Where is your security? When you're doing well, what or who do you look to? When you're not doing well, what or who do you look to? Are you rich in this age only? And here's the important question. Brothers and sisters, do you know that you are rich in Christ right now? 
Do you know that the riches that Christ earned for you in heaven are as sure as your salvation is? If Christ died for you, you blow Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and everybody else out of the water, so stop looking to them. All of their riches will burn. It means nothing. Does them a lot of good, right? They're a bunch of pagans. But you in Christ have more value than all of them and every rich person who has ever lived put together. Praise God indeed. So one last thing. Notice how Paul is not presumptuous of the rich or the poor. There is no inherent righteousness in riches or poverty. There is never a biblical command to be poor or to be rich. And when wealth is addressed, it is always a challenge to our affections, always a challenge to our hearts. Um, We're very familiar with the rich young ruler, Luke 18. Even here, this is not a command, be poor, therefore you will be holy. This is often taken out of context. Luke 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. Yeah, right. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And notice what that's associated with. Come follow me. If you want to be rich, because notice his initial question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He thought, his obedience to the commands of the law would, what, would, what, would be, uh, what would give him eternal life. Jesus says, you know what will give you eternal life? Get rid of everything that has a hold on your heart and follow me. He walked away very sad because his riches had a hold on his heart. It wasn't that he was rich. It was that he loved his riches more than he loved Christ. And again, that's the point here. Riches are not bad unless you love them more than Christ. If you love riches or the things of this world more than you love Christ, enjoy it. This is as good as it gets. This is as rich as you will ever be. So because I went longer than that, uh, I'm going to quickly hit my last point here in guarding. And then grace will be our conclusion. So in Timothy, this is kind of like a uh, verses 20 and 21. This is kind of a final summary uh, exhortation, an encouragement to Timothy, just wrapping everything up. Timothy, there are two competing theologies, two competing philosophies. One you guard with your life and you fight for it. The other one you avoid and you flee from it. On the one hand, you've got the good deposit. He says to Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. A deposit is something someone else gives. You didn't make it up. It's this, this good deposit is not something that is within Timothy. It has been entrusted to him. 
A wealthy man has come along and said, this is good, this is valuable, take it, keep it. It's going to be continued in 2 Timothy next week. What is this great deposit? This is the good theology, the good philosophy. This is the witness of the scriptures. This is the message of the prophets and the apostles. This is the person and work of Christ for justification, sanctification, and glorification. What is the good deposit that Jesus Christ came to save sinners? I am chief among him. And in him I have justification. I have been saved through the righteousness of Christ by putting my faith in him. The good news, the, the, the entrustment that was given to Timothy is sanctification. You get to grow in the image of Christ. And, and Christ is, is um, making you into his image. In one degree after another, you get to leave behind this old man who's going to die and these old things are going to pass away. And you get to put on Christ and that which will never pass away. And, we have, and he entrusted us with glorification. We get to point people to this rich kingdom of our living God. We get to point them forward, that our hope is not in the things that we leave behind, but what awaits us in the future. This is the greatest treasure in this life. Um, last parallel passage is going to be Ephesians 1. Could not look at Ephesians 1, because this brings together the idea of riches. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him, being Christ, the beloved of the, of the Father, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The world looks at the cross and says foolishness, folly. We look at the cross and say riches. There is nothing richer than your account being settled and then being added to by the riches of God himself. That is how rich he is. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us, grace upon grace upon grace. Forgiveness for this sin and that sin and every other sin you will commit in Christ. That is real riches. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This is that great deposit. Guard it, Timothy. Guard it, saints, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The riches of God is that he lets us into his mystery, his mystery. That I'm redeeming the world, that I'm beginning with you. And I'm going to add those who share in the inheritance. And the amazing thing about this inheritance is that the more brothers and sisters come to share in the inheritance, the greater and bigger it gets. This isn't like if you have to, if you have to split an inheritance with, with one more family member, your share goes down. When family members are added, your share goes up. Because you walk along and work alongside those who are building up eternally riches as well. That's the one hand. On the other hand, what he is to avoid is the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We've looked at this in the text. The false religion that says, do this, don't do this, eat this, don't eat this. The false knowledge that says, know all of these things. Vain discussions, genealogies, speculation, controversies. Leave those things aside. Daniel Henderson, pastor and writer, this is brilliant. He says, the devil doesn't need to destroy you. In fact, he can't. All he needs to do is distract you. The devil wields weapons of mass distraction. I love that. 
So at the end of the letter, at the end of all things, these two things are placed before us. This seems like an easy choice, right? Eternal riches in Christ, the one who doesn't change, or controversies and irreverent babble. But those are tempting, because who doesn't want to take pride in our own good works? Who doesn't want to take pride in the knowledge they possess? Who hasn't thought that they can be saved by just adjusting their behavior? If that was true, I'd be saved from all the spankings I got, and my parents tried. (laughs) Behavioral modification cannot save you. Controversies cannot save you. They're just a distraction. Who doesn't want to hear some new hot take? Who doesn't want to hear one theologian slander another? But they just draw us away from the good deposit. As Paul says, many have swerved from the faith. So like Timothy, every pastor is to stand for the truth. We stand between the sheep and the wolves. We have been entrusted with the master's words and the master's servants. And so he ends with this beautiful benediction. Very short, but very powerful. Grace be with you. Uh, It's important for you to notice that the you here is in the plural. Like we've said all along, he is writing to one person. But by extension, it is applied to everyone and to us. So, what do we know about grace? Here's how I want to end the letter of Timothy. How can all the riches of this life and the life to come be summed up? The grace of God. How can the good deposit entrusted to Timothy be described? The grace of God towards sinners. This is what sets us apart from every false religion. Every false religion says, you do and you will live. The gospel says, I have done and now you live. That's a good plug for men today. We're going to be talking about the gospel in our men's study. So I want you to hear this morning, your riches can't save you. They can't give you hope. They can't give you security. Only the riches of the glorious grace of our God can. And I pray his riches for you. And so brothers and sisters, I want you to hear and just rest in this. If you are in Christ, the grace of Christ is with you now and will always be with you because he has graciously poured out his riches through the blood of Christ. And he continues to provide graciously and generously for your every need. So with all the saving grace and continuing grace of our Savior, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for the riches of your mercy which you lavish upon us in the cross. Lord, make all of the rich and shiny things of this world seem like garbage. May we hold them in open hands. May we, may, may we praise you for them. May we enjoy everything from you. But, that we would, we, but compared to you, they mean nothing. Lord, may we be poor in this life rather than be rich and deny you. Lord, keep us from the excess and the desires of Riches, keep us from the trappings and the temptations of poverty. Give us contentment. 
Give us contentment in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and our life in him. Lord, we will go on for the rest of our lives talking about the amazing grace that we have. We praise you for this grace. We praise you that it is with us and it will never leave. We thank you that you don't change even when, when our sinful hearts change as often as we can. We praise you that our security is not in ourselves but in Christ Jesus. And he said it is finished. And so it is on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen.